I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of, I got two places to turn, Ephesians 3 and Matthew 28. Book of Ephesians chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 28. I want to begin by reading two verses from the book of Ephesians as we continue in our series on the truth that the church matters. Uh, it matters to God and it should matter to us. And this is a verse that I think hones in on this issue very powerfully. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, that is by the Spirit, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, I think I could argue from that text that the church is valuable and is important to God. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that he equates at some level, not, I don't think, a total equality, but a, 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 a quasi-equality between the church itself and the glory of Christ. That glory would be to God in the church and in Jesus Christ. So God has purposes that he desires to work out in the church in her relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does the church matter to me? Does it matter to you? It's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Does it really matter? Is it a high priority in my life as a Christian? Charles Spurgeon, preacher from a few centuries ago, called the church the dearest place on earth. The dearest place on earth. Why? Because the church is intended by God to be a taste of heaven for all who enter in. That when people come into the context of a church family, into the context of church life, they should begin to experience and long for more of that, which ultimately, ultimately will be fulfilled in his presence in heaven. In our current series, we are talking about discovering the importance of the church. And as we talk about the church, I want to just touch on one concept, and hopefully this will be helpful to you. When the Bible talks about the church, it talks about the church in two ways. Some theologians call it the church local and the church universal. Some call it the church visible and the church invisible. Okay, the church invisible, that is the church you can't see, is all believers from all time gathered together in the presence of God. Past, present, and future. All right, that I can't see. So what am I left with seeing? I am left with seeing the church visible which is the church manifested in local regions. We call them local churches. They are small manifestations of a larger picture. Does that make sense? So that what we are is a small picture of a bigger picture. Okay, we are a manifestation of Jesus Christ, and it is through those manifestations of Christ that God desires to be honored and glorified. So the church, for God, is a priority. Now, does Jesus himself elevate the church in terms of its priority? Okay, does he do that? Okay, and I would argue from Matthew 16, 18, that Jesus says that the church is the primary purpose of God in our age. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. All that Satan throws against the church will not be successful in overthrowing the purpose of God. So I think we can argue from Scripture that for God, 
as John Stott says, the church lies at the very center of his eternal purpose. Now, last week, we spent some time looking at pictures or metaphors that help us to understand the church. We looked at the fact that the church is his temple. It's his bride. That is the object of his deep affection. It is his people, his family, his household. And lastly, it is his body. Now, if we springboard this morning off this thought that the church is the body of Christ, I think all of us would agree that our physical body is the means by which we accomplish very specific tasks. Okay, with our hands, with our feet, with our eyes, with our mouth. We, in our body, function. It is an instrument that we use to accomplish various things. My spirit cannot go and accomplish things. God has placed my spirit within a body, and in that body, I accomplish various tasks that God has designed for me. And this same thing is true for the body of Christ, the church. He indwells the church, and through the church, desires to fulfill very specific God-honoring purposes. And all of these analogies that are used to describe the church help us to get a better understanding of what she is. Our aim over the next few weeks is to evaluate a few of the purposes of God for the church. We're not going to cover all the purposes for the church, but we're going to focus on the main purposes, I believe, that that God has given to the church with the hope that we will be encouraged as we understand this to deepen our commitment to those purposes, and then we will more effectively be the church that God has called us to be. So let me ask you this question this morning. Why do we exist? Why do we exist? And I would argue that the primary purpose for which the church exists is to glorify God. Would you agree with that? Right? I think that's what Paul's saying here. Now to him who is able to do more than all we could ask or think, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ. So our, our primary purpose in everything we do, and Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do. And what is he talking about? He's talking about the daily rhythms of life. In everything you do, do it all to the glory of God. There is not one dimension of your life that doesn't matter to God. And there's not one dimension of your life as a believer that is disassociated from the church and its purpose in it to be glorified. So the overarching purpose of the church, we want to say, is that God would be glorified. And it is for that reason that the church is central to his purpose. Now, that forces me to ask a question. And that is, how do I as a Christian, and how do we as the church glorify and honor God? Now, some people take different approaches to this. Some people think that they choose the purpose of the church. Some believe that they are to come up with a purpose for the church, that is to create it. Now, I would argue that we as believers have an obligation before God to consult the manual that he has given us, the Bible, and there we discover the purposes for the church. We don't create them. We don't choose which things we'd like to emphasize. We discover the purposes for the church that God has given, and then we go and be those purposes and fulfill those purposes for the glory of God. Now, as we move into our topic this morning of the purpose of God, the purpose of God for the church is to make the gospel known. And the term that I would apply to that, the term that we're most familiar with, it's a term that makes most of us nervous, is the term evangelism. If somebody came to you and said, what kind of church is it that you attend? What is that thing called 
the chapel. Okay, our name is intentionally obscure. Okay, meaning if you say to someone, oh, I attend the chapel at Warren Valley, they're not going to find that answer very helpful. Okay, why? Because the name doesn't say a lot. And when we were talking about selecting a name for our church family, we knew that people would know it's a church, but we didn't want it to say things that would keep them away. Does that make sense? And so it's a name that requires definition. You have to explain to people what the chapel at Warren Valley is. And, and I think when people ask that question, some may refer to what our church service is like. That is a reference to what we do on Sunday morning. You may describe our music. Some people will refer to the fact that our church is like family for them. It's a friendly place with hopes that you would come in and enjoy a friendly environment. Some would point to the emphasis on Bible teaching and our belief in the Bible as God's word. Right? Let me ask you a question. Would you think that it is appropriate to say that the Chapel of Warren Valley is an evangelical church. Okay, would you think that's an appropriate way to describe what we are? Kind of depends on what you think when you hear the word evangelical. We live in a culture in which the word evangelical is a little bit loaded, isn't it? It's like evangelical, you must be a Republican. <laughs> right? Or you're an evangelical, you're probably against abortion. Is that fair? Okay, most people think in terms of conservative evangelicals, and, and therefore the term evangelical, it's diluted as to its core meaning and purpose. Should Christians be conservative? It depends what conservative means. If it means that they're people who are orienting their lives to the word of God and living out those values, believing in absolute truth, then yes, you can accuse me of being a conservative. Okay, I desire to see the truth of God implemented in all of our lives. In that sense, I'm conservative. But I don't mean it as a political statement when I say that the chapel of Warren Valley should be an evangelical church. We have to find definition for evangelical in the context of the pages of Scripture. So let me try to walk you through some thoughts. An evangelical Christian is an interesting statement. What is a Christian? To be a Christian means to follow Christ. Okay? A Christian is someone who follows Christ. And the evangel, or the, in, 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 in the New Testament, I'm going to Englishize the Greek word. Okay? It is the, the evangel is the word we use to talk about the good news or the good word of God. Okay, to evangelize then is to do what? It's to share the good news, the evangel, with people. And we're commanded by God to do that. So an evangelical Christian then is what? It is a follower of Christ, or they are a follower of Christ, who shares the good news of Jesus. Okay, that word evangel is loaded. It's good news. It has a, an audience that it is intended for. There are people that need to hear that there is for them good news. This morning, I want you to go through a couple of questions. First of all, what is the gospel we share? What is the gospel? What is the, the evangel? What is the good news that we share? How many of you know where the first mention of the gospel is found in Scripture? Want to take a shot? 
All right, okay, okay, you're, yeah. Um, as the specific word, when do you think the first time evangel is used in the Bible? Any guesses? Okay, it's found in Luke chapter 2. When Christ is born, the angels come to the shepherds, and what do they say? All right, behold, I bring you tidings of good news. That's the word evangel. That shall be for all people, for unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior or a Rescuer. His name is Christ the Lord. Okay, so the, the, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of Jesus, is the inception, if you will, in time of the Evangel, of the good news. So what is the good news? It is the message about Christ. This is what the angels are saying to the shepherds. We bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all the people. What is the good news? A Savior has been born for you today. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is someone who can rescue you from all of your sin and its consequences. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, the other place I would like you to turn with me real quick. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn back a familiar passage, but I just want to touch on it very quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Once you notice what Paul says, he says, I received, or what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And then he goes into a definition of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. Then it goes on to talk about how many people saw the resurrected Christ. But at its very core, the good news of the gospel can be stated in a very few words. Christ died for our sins. That is the good news that the, the, the guilt that you bear, the the weight of shame that you experience due to your sinfulness has been borne away by a Savior. And his name is Christ the Lord. Folks, that is the good news that God has loaded our lives with, that we have the privilege of taking and passing on to those around us. And I would argue that what we share is the good news that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to bear the price of our sins. Romans 5.8 says it this way. It says, God showed his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that death of Christ for our sins is the good news that God has given us to share. So the gospel we share, if I was to put it in the simplest terms, I would say the gospel is the good news that Christ died for me and that Christ died for you. Irregardless of who you are, he paid the penalty for your sin. Now, the second question I want to ask is this. Should that message that Christ died for our sins be central to our experience as the body of Christ? Okay? Should that be central, the, the, the driving message, the purpose for everything that we do, that God would be glorified in the proclamation of the gospel? And I think that is what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15. This gospel that you believed in that changed your life is of first importance. So therefore, as the church, what do we need to do? We need to always fight to keep the gospel central in everything we do. It should drive and motivate all 
that we seek to accomplish for the glory of God. But then you have to ask the question, why should it be central? Why should it be of first importance? And I believe the answer to that is found in Romans 1, verse 16, where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That is, I will not be silenced. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the hope of the nations. It is what motivates Alan Peggy uh, to get on an airplane three, four times a year and go to China. What? The gospel. That there is a message that people haven't heard, that when they hear it, it has the power and potential to change their life. It is the power of God. Folks, there are a lot of things you can do for people, but the most powerful thing you can do for people is to communicate that to them the good news of Christ in various ways, but ultimately in the truth itself, in the word. It is central, and it is the means that God has designed to use to change the world in which we live. Now, I want to read for you a text from Ephesians 1 beginning in verse 13. Just listen to this passage of Scripture. Paul's writing to the church. He's giving a statement of praise to God. He says, you were included in Christ. This is how you came into the church. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, now, how, how do we come into the church? How do people gain entrance? They hear the word of truth, they believe it by the power of the Spirit of God, and then they are then marked by the Holy Spirit of God as part of the body of Christ. And the gospel is the means by which that transformation and that transition by which that new identity becomes a reality in our lives. That's why Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. It should be central to all we do because it is what changes our lives. Now, here's the encouraging thing for me. As I read this text, it says, when you heard the gospel of salvation, having believed, you were marked in him. In Acts 2, 41 and 47, it says, as the gospel was being preached, the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. So there's a mystery in this, isn't there? There's a proclamation of the truth, and then there is a work of God in the hearts of those that believe. So that when we share the gospel, when we take the good news of God, that is the power of God for salvation, God works with us in that effort to see people's hearts changed so that they will believe the gospel. So this process of evangelism is not a burden that we carry in the sense that we have to get people to change their mind about God. No, what we have to do is deliver the good news of the gospel to people and allow the Spirit of God to open hearts and to bring faith to believe and trust in Christ. Here's the way I like to think of evangelism. I like to think of evangelism as delivering mail. Okay? I can't force people to believe the gospel. I can't convince people of the gospel. What I can do is share the gospel. Their response to that is their responsibility before God. And so we pray that God will open people's hearts to understand the message of the gospel so that they can be saved and experience life change. Sharing the good news of Christ is central to the church because it is the means by which God changes people's lives. The last question I want to ask is, how do we get it done? In other words, 
What's the practical outworking of this truth? And to, to understand that, I want to go back to Matthew 28 and verse 19. The resurrected Lord is speaking. He acknowledges that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And in light of that authority, he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now that go and make disciples of all nations is just another way to talk about evangelism. Okay, it's another way to talk about sharing the good news of Jesus that changes lives. And so, you, you can look at this text in two ways. You can look at it as a mandate or directed to the church as a corporate entity or body, but the church is made up of, by God's design, individuals, right? And so every individual has a responsibility before God to take the evangel the good news, and to begin to share it in their sphere of influence. And, and the way that Jesus describes this is fascinating. It's, it's while you're going, which means in the ebb and flow of normal life, in the evening and mornings of normal life, in going to work in normal life, in your family in normal life, as you're going, make disciples. As you're going, seek to share the good news of Christ. We have been called by God as the church to go with the purpose into the normal aspects of our lives with the good news of Christ. Now, so this going then is essential to building the church, isn't it? Because this going has as its aim the communication of good news that changes people's lives. And so God calls us to be people who intentionally go and seek to share the good news of Christ. Can I make an observation for most of us as Christians? Most of us tend to be waiting Christians as opposed to missional Christians. I mean, if somebody walks up to you and says, hey, can you share the gospel with me? Most of us say, I've been waiting for that opportunity, right? And you would be like, knock me over, right? Because rarely does that happen. And folks, it's not really until we become intentional about going missional. You know, most churches spend a lot of time thinking about how they can attract people to come into their building. Can I give you a secret? The people on the outside don't want to come in your building. Okay? The gospel they see, the church they see, I want you to think about this. The body of Christ they see is you. It's me. In your sphere of influence, the Jesus they see, the body of Christ that he indwells is you. Folks, I don't think we should tolerate the luxury of being waiting Christians. Now, the Great Commission is stronger than that, isn't it? It's a command to go and to go with intent. And as you're going, be making disciples of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean by force because I can't do that. It's a cooperative effort with God. I deliver the good message and pray that God will change people's hearts through it. That that gospel will be the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Trust that the Spirit of God, Acts 1.8, will do what He says He will do. When He comes, He says, you will be my witnesses. And you're going to take the good news into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. In Washington and in New Jersey and the United States and on to China and beyond. Folks, that's the privilege we have. So as you go in the normal 
routines of life. Be missional. Be intentional. Take time to share Jesus, the message that Christ died for our sins. Another thought I want to share with you this morning is this. And, and, and th this really is what sharing the gospel is all about in the word of God. Be willing to testify to what God has done for you. And if I'm just trying to keep it simple. Okay, evangelism scares me to death. Okay? It makes me nervous. Okay, because I tend to be a little more self-conscious than I should be. Okay, and that's true for most people. We're so concerned about what people will think about us that we're careful about what we say. And here's what I would encourage you to do. Get in the practice of telling people what great things God has done for you. In other words, we've done evangelism classes in our church. I haven't seen evangelism classes produce an evangelistic church. Why? Because you can know it here, but if your heart isn't motivated to declare the good things that God has done for you, you will remain silent about good news. Do you know that experience? I would challenge you to ask yourself this question this morning. When is the last time I testified to the goodness of God in my life? That I spoke a good word about what God has done in my life. I'm fascinated by the model of Jesus. Remember the story of the demoniac of the Gadarenes? Doug preached on this a few months ago. A man who was wild. He was crazy. He was an outsider. Jesus came and freed him from his insanity and from his sin. Jesus took a man that was disintegrated and reoriented him. He gave him new birth. You know what his first response was? I want to go with you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. You changed my life. What does Jesus say to him? He says, here's what I want you to do. Go back to your town. And tell them what great things God has done for you. I think of the woman of Samaria. A woman that lived in shame. John chapter 4. She came to the well at midday because she could not mix with other people because of her reputation. Jesus encounters her at the well. Shares with her the fact that there is hope for a wicked sinner like her. Her life is transformed in that encounter. And the disciples come and they're like, hey, what's going on here? What, what's all this about? And in the middle of that interaction between Jesus and the disciples, what does she do? I don't even know if she's told to do this, but I know what she does. She goes back into Samaria, and she begins to testify to the work of Jesus in her life. Here's all she says. Come and see a man that told me everything I did and still pursued me. Not for pleasure, but for salvation. Now, folks, I don't know. In the church today, if we said, that is ludicrous. She didn't take an evangelism class. <laughs> no, she didn't. You know what she did? She went back and told them what God had done for her. Folks, here's what we need to do. We need to shake off the stigma of evangelism. 
We need to shake off. I've got to have all these verses memorized and all this and that, all that down. No, you know what you need to do? You need to go and tell people what great things God has done for you. And that telling needs to become a passion that motivates you to get up out of bed in the morning, that causes you to cry out to God and say, God, by the power of your spirit, make me an effective advertisement for the gospel of Christ today. It's that simple. And not think, I got, oh, I got to memorize all these. What if I get confused? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? So what? Evangelism is co- cooperating with a powerful God who infuses his truth in your life for the salvation of sinners. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes to that church and he says, I've heard how the world, outsiders, are saying that you turn to God from idols to serve him alone. And as a result of that transformation in your life, the gospel is echoing as if sound off a sounding board. It is echoing. It is booming through all of Asia Minor, the region of Rome in the ancient world. How? Well, their life was changed, and they began to testify to the change in their life. And look, folks, you don't... I'll say it this way, okay? And I learned this from my friend in India, Victor John. He said, Tim, simplify it. If someone has placed faith in Christ and acknowledged that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, they know enough to share the gospel. You know what most of us are doing? We're waiting till we're ready. Okay, uh, can I give you a secret? You'll never be ready. And if you ever feel ready, don't go in your own power. <laughs> don't. Go in the power of the Spirit of God. And folks, listen, here's what Jesus said. In all your nervousness, and I don't know what to say, they may ask me a question I can't answer, all those kinds of things that keep us from doing what we are being prompted by the Spirit of God to do. Right? Because that's what Jesus says. He says, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He will give you a desire to communicate truth that can change people's lives. But we allow our flesh to stifle that in the fear of man. God wants to conquer the fear of man by this surge of the presence of God by the Spirit that prompts you. And I promise you, if you know Christ, you experience this. I should have said something. Okay, I should testify. And I just want to encourage you. Testify communicate the fact that Christ died for their sins. And just recall when he converted you, when he changed your heart and changed your life, your perspective on your shame and your sinfulness and showed you that there was a hope because someone stood in your place and took the hit that you deserved. Share that with people in every way possible, in everything you do, in all circumstances. We are to be evangelical Christians, followers of Christ who communicate the good news. May God help us. May God help us. In the life of the church, how do we communicate the gospel? Because there are times, and there, you may be here this morning as, a, as an observer. You may be here saying, I wonder what this is really all about. What motivates, what drives this church family? In the life of the church, we can share the gospel. In our relationships, as we are kind and compassionate to one another and forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven us, we communicate the gospel. In our worship, we communicate the gospel. We strive as a church family to share in our music deep content that glorifies and exalts the gospel of Christ. 
And we have precedent for this in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. It says, they sang a new song. You are worthy to open its seals because you were slain and purchased with your blood people from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And folks, what are we doing in evangelism? We're saying to people that there is hope for you through the Savior Jesus Christ. He, in his work on the cross, purchased people from every tribe, nation, and language. What is our job? It's to go out and find those people who God is, who, in whose heart God is working for the glory of his name. So in worship, we sing about the glory of the cross of Christ. And I, I absolutely love a number of the songs that we sing that powerfully communicate the gospel. I often stand there and think, if I could preach it that clearly, that just when we sing together, it's evangelism. And then this morning, we will observe in our sacraments, in our ordinances, the proclamation of the gospel. In baptism, what are we doing? We're simply saying that the person who is being baptized has been identified with Christ in such a way that his death, burial, and resurrection has become personal for them, that they have trusted in it by faith. In communion, we partake of two elements. We partake of bread, which is a symbol of the broken body of Christ. In the cup, we partake of, of, of juice, which is a symbol of the blood of Christ. Folks, listen, in both things, what are we doing? We are proclaiming the death of Christ as our only hope. And we are harking back to the simple gospel. Christ died for our sins. And the Apostle Paul said that should be central to our lives. It's good news. It's good news for the hurting person around you. It's good news for the person who lives with shame around you. It's good news for the person who wrestles to be religious enough they're in favor with God and those they never measure up. It is good news for them. Let me ask you a question this morning. If somehow in your kitchen you created something, found something, discovered something that was able to cure cancer, what would you do? Like, if you knew, I cracked the code. I've got it. No, my luck, it's probably okra. <laughs> but if you, it just, oh, you realize, I have it. You would have a choice. You can do your celebration dances every morning in your kitchen saying, I found it. I found it. And it would make no difference if you never shared it. If you kept it to yourself and one day perhaps you come down with that disease that is eating away at and killing your body and you take it and your life is saved. But you never share it. You would die a selfish person without any real purpose in life but yourself. Folks, can we be honest? And say, if you found that cure, I hope you wouldn't go out and patent it. Oh, I got a way to make money. No, you know what? I found something that would change people's lives. And if you're a believer in and a follower of Christ, the evangel has invaded your life. The good news that Christ died for me. And I want you this morning to think back. I want you to think back. When that came clear to you,
Maybe you're here this morning, you say, you know what, Pastor Tim, I trusted Christ at a relatively young age. But as I began to grow in Christ and study and understand the nuances and, 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 the, and just the breadth and width of the gospel that Paul prays that we would understand, it has become so precious. I want you to think back. Think back when it, when it made sense. Christ died instead of me. Christ died for me. He bore the wrath of God on the cross that I deserved when that thought became precious to you. Go back and rehearse it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Thank God for it. And then when you go into your week, when you go into your home, when you go into your workplace, into your community, when you go out to serve other people, let all that you do be infused with this purpose of the church that is evangelism that is christians followers of christ who are evangelical that make the good news known to a world that desperately needs to hear it folks these are our marching orders as the church we live in an age in which there is much to complain about we live in an age that is full of concern you cannot watch the news in this past week and not say my heart breaks or that fear overcomes me and you Look, people are asking the question, where is hope? Where is hope? And here's what we need to say as the church. Hope is found in the gospel. And as you have opportunity, testify to how that gospel has transformed your life and given you hope and a future. Testify that truth to a broken and needy world. Testify that truth to the person in your workplace that lives with shame and brokenness. Folks, understand, when God allows people's lives to shake, when he allows things to break in their lives, he intends to bring healing through the gospel. Be his witnesses. Be the instrument that God wants to use. And if you're here this morning, maybe you, you are frustrated with your attempts to earn favor with God. Good. Good. Stop. And by grace, through faith alone, Receive what Jesus Christ accomplished for you on the cross. He stood in your place, paid the price for your sin so that you could be forgiven and become a follower of Christ who testifies to the great things that God has done for you. Let's pray this morning. Father.